Tom Ingram. Jim, very nice to, to connect with you. Yes. Uh, so this is Jim English, and welcome to my podcast. And now we have, in the past, we've had just do a lot of podcasts on Warriors basketball. And now we have his esteemed father, who is a photographer, as a guest on my podcast. Welcome, Tom, and tell us a little bit about yourself, please. Well, thank you very much, Jim. Um, I've recently um, retired from, from technology, um, working many years in technology in, in the Silicon Valley, but I've always had a dream and passion for wildlife photography, and um, I decided about four years ago to make that a full-time hobby career. And I've, I spend most of the time that my wife allows me to be away from home, um, out okay. traveling, um, taking, taking pictures of nature and wildlife. So how did you first get interested in this? Did you have a passion when you were a kid? Or, I mean, did you always have a passion for wildlife? How did this develop? So I've always had a, a passion. Um, starting in, in my senior year in high school, I had the unique opportunity to have a forestry wildlife teacher um, named Tom Fur that um, taught a wildlife course. Um, and, and we ended up through the years building a fish hatchery. And we're one of the only high schools, well, we are the only high school in the United States that has a full-blown fish hatchery in our high school. Um, releasing stillhead and salmon into the stream. And I was actually his very first year as a teacher. And he planted a, a seed in me and kind of germinated my love for nature. And I've, I've never looked back at that time. So that was back in 1983. And where was this, Tom? This was in Petaluma, California, Sonoma County. And so if you're actually familiar with Loganitas IPA, Loganitas Beer, the creek, Loganitas Creek, runs through um, Point Reyes. And that's one of the, the creeks that um, Mr. Furr's class um, now um, puts um, little um, seedling um, stillhead and salmon into. I see. And what kind of salmon is it? Oh, boy. You're going to get me in trouble with that one. Um, oh. <laughs> I, I don't know. <laughs> so that was your initial sort of focus on wildlife. And did anything happen in during that time that was interesting or funny, or is there a story to tell or something com compelling? Anything happened in high school that the audience might be interested in? Well, we we started out. We had um, he we he selected six students to do what he called bear training, and we went up with the rangers to um, Yosemite um, National Park. And at that time, as the bears were getting into the garbage cans, we were allowed to go out with the rangers in the evening and watch them, um, you know, capture the beer, bears and relocate the bears. And um, that's what kind of really, truly kicked me off in this, this space um, way, way back in high school. And so when I went off to college originally, I started off. Wait, can, can I ask you yeah. a couple questions, please? Yeah. So yeah. how did they capture, they captured a bear? Well, really what we learned, to be honest, was to make lots of noise. So initially what they would do is just go out and, and, and teach us that the best way to stay safe with black bears is to just get pots and pans and drums 
and try to try to chase them off. And so when we were with them, that's really what we were doing is we in a safe place. We were witnessing the rangers um, just keeping the bears out of the campgrounds. And then they would go back and they would teach us what they would do with the bears if they became what they called nuisance bears and they were repeat defenders. Did, did any of these bears get aggressive? I mean, this is, I know a black bear, I know a little bit about bears and black bears, like a mid-sized bear, but they're still like six, 700 pounds, right? Yes, they can get really large. And, and I've come to learn recently that, you know, black bears actually can be more dangerous than grizzly bears, um, especially the, the, the large mothers on the East Coast. Um, but in this experience, um, what I really learned was not to fear. You know, most of my experience with wildlife has been that they're not as dangerous as we sometimes believe they are, and that they're actually very predictable. And if you watch their behavior and you learn what the, the right behavior is, you're really seldom in a, 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 a dangerous situation. They typically really? are afraid of us. They're much more afraid of us than we are of them. And you, so when you were a 16, 17 year old kid out getting bears and spooking them and trying to move them away, did any tenuous situations happen or did they go as predicted? You know, I wish I had a great story, but they, they typically went as predicted. And, and what the learning really was is that they are predictable and, you know, our bad behavior causes them to misbehave and, um, you know, it was more the teaching of the things that we do, uh, the bad things that we can do that can get them in trouble um, and that can lead to their demise. I see. I see. So after high school, did you continue this passion and how did you nurture it? So I continued my love for photography. I actually this was still the film days. And so early on through this teacher, I ended up becoming a forest firefighter. And oh. so my first year in, in college, um, I fought fires and I then fell in love with flying and I decided I was going to become a pilot. And um, it, through a very strange path, I ended up going to, into the Marine Corps and I trained in Quantico, Virginia, where, which is where the Marine Corps, I mean, I'm sorry, where the FBI also trains. And so I interviewed with the FBI and the FBI said, you know, we get a lot of criminal justice major. What we really love to have are accountants. So I ended up graduating in accounting and spent the next 20 years in an office away from my dream. And um, so what happened is in 2007, my technology company took me to India. And I took Justin and, and, and my daughter and my wife. We all moved to India for four years. And that's really where my love for nature photography took off, which was in about 2007, um, while I was living overseas in India. So you were an accountant for the FBI? No, no, no. I ended up not being an FBI. I ended up becoming accounting based on, I ended up graduating and joining at the time it was called the Big Eight um, accounting. Oh, firm. right. right. And, oh. And, spent my, and spent my career. But it was because of the FBI <laughs> that I ended up getting into accounting. But I ended up being, a, a, you know, a, writing a desk, as they would say, in a cube um, and, and, and had a, a, a technical professional career. Um, and it was only in about 2007 that I really picked the camera back up and really, really started um, my love for, for nature photography.
And that was in India? It was in India. Um, Whoa. I, and um, there's, a, you know, we, we know of Africa and the beautiful nature um, and safaris in Africa, but there's actually a lot of amazing wildlife in India as well. And a lot of beautiful birds. And where were you in India? We lived in Bangalore, which was Southern uh -huh. India. And it was there. So you started taking pictures in your spare time. You picked up the camera. How did this work? How all of a sudden did you reignite your passion? Well, you know, the funny thing is, is when we were here in the States, I was coaching the kids in sports and, you know, we were going to concerts. There's just so many activities to do here in the U.S. And where we were living in India, there just wasn't the typical um, activities that we're used to. So I ended up having a lot of spare time. And I started wandering around in our, you know, our neighborhood and just looking up and there were just all these incredible, beautiful birds. And so, you know, I started taking pictures of birds. And, and, and at the time, you know, everybody laughed at me. <laughs> it was kind of because I wasn't very good and everybody thought I was a birder. And there's a difference from a bird photographer and a birder. Um, but What's the difference? Well, well, birders tend to go out and, and we call them listers. And they want to be able to keep a list of all the different species of birds that they've seen throughout the world. And right. so they typically, once they've seen it through their binoculars or once they've heard the bird sound, um, they list it and, um, and they, they, they keep this list. And so you might go out birding and see 50 birds one morning. Where myself as a photographer, I might spend two or three days just trying to capture one photo of one bird doing, you know, some unique activity. Interesting, because I saw a, sh uh, a movie, as it was a bird watching movie, where Owen Wilson and Steve Martin competed for who saw the most birds in a year. The big year. The big year. The big year. That's right. Yes. That's exactly yeah. what it was. That was a pretty wild movie. So, I mean, that wasn't too far from what a birder does then, huh? Well, not only was it not too far, but I've actually met all of the real characters um, that were in that movie. Um, if you remember, there was the one lady that was in the boat, that they went into a boat and she, um, the, the boat in the movie goes out of Seattle. Um, but in real life, that boat actually went out of Monterey Bay. And uh, her name, her real name was Debbie Shearwater. Um, and she, she had renamed herself Shearwater because the birds on the ocean are called Shearwater birds. Um, but that was a true story um, that that really? movie was about. And they just, they made it fun. Um, but that is very, and so every year there is a contest that's called the big year where you try to um, identify and see the most amount of birds in North America. And believe it or not, that movie motivated me to do one of the things that I have a website that I have listed every North America bird. And I'm not doing a big year, which is trying to see all the birds in one year, but I am up to 546 um, birds that I have photographed. So I'm trying to photograph every North America bird and I'm trying to get a quality shot, not just a picture that you can identify that I saw the bird, but a quality shot of each North America bird. And that's been one of the aspirations that I've been working on since 2010. Really? So let's do, we're, we're digressing a little bit. Yes. Okay. So we, we found <clears throat> last we were talking, we were in India and you started, you started uh, photographing birds. What type of birds and how big were they? 
and how close were they to where you lived? And tell us about the birds you were photographing in India. So the first bird that I photographed in India, um, one of the things that's typical about India is things break down a lot. And so we were out on a safari with the kids and our boat broke down in the lake and we were literally stuck out there for about an hour. And while we were there, there was a osprey and an osprey can be found in every continent except um, Antarctica. And it swooped down and it took a fish out of the water and I captured a picture of it. Not a good picture, not a picture I'd be proud of today, but a picture that I was pretty excited about. And then about 15 minutes later, there was a peregrine falcon that swooped down and took um, and captured a, uh, um, a bird. I, I remember what type of bird it was. And I got a picture of that as well. And that is what got me started. It was those two pictures. I came back and I was hooked. Um, so you, you caught, so a peregrine falcon, which if memory serves me correctly, this is in the back of my mind somewhere, that this is the fastest animal on earth. That is correct. Okay. So it was swooping down and grabbed a bird out of the air. Yes. And you caught it. So I wow. captured. So I, well, that must have been. Me, yes. But let me, let me step back because now with the right equipment and the right skills, I do capture shots like that. At this time, I witnessed it happen. It flew up on a tree with the bird and I took a picture of it perched up on the tree. But so I, I, at that I time, I did not get the in-flight picture. But that is actually what I focus on now with my photography is trying to capture the speed, the dexterity of, of the fast moving birds, but, but not back when I was in India. Yeah, so what type of camera did you have back in India? So those I were the olden days of cameras. <laughs> yes, it, I, I had gotten one of the first models with, I think it was a one pixel camera um, and it was a um, Olympus but it was, it was one of the first digital. I, I had been using film, but I'd switched to, to digital. And um, it was a, a very, very, very basic camera compared to what we have and the technology that we have today. And what else did you, did you like, you know, India, when I think of India, I think of snakes mm. and I happen to love reptiles. Uh, you know, I think of cobras and I think of all the, you know, mambas. Did mm -hmm. you happen to get any reptiles or are you pretty much focused on birds? Well, it's funny. We had a lot of reptiles and it was actually, um, you know, you can, when you talk with Jesson next, you can ask him this story. Um, I didn't photograph him at the time, but the reason we moved home was a spectacle cobra ended up in his bedroom. And that's when his mom said, okay, we are done. We are moving home. <laughs> so we so, did have a lot of snakes around us when we were in India. So tell that story. So how old was Justin at the time? So Justin was about 11 years old and we had got him a fish tank. And um, I didn't know it at the time, but cobras um, eat fish and they love the smell of fish. And so his fish tank was leaking water onto the floor and I guess the snake had smelt the fish and that had drawn it into his room. Um, luckily, um, we had a, a helper that stayed with us that would close the curtains and, and bring down the, 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 sh the bed sheets at night when it was time for bed. And when she was in the room, she saw the snake. 
we we had so many snakes when we were in India. Um, we also had Russell vipers a lot in the yard. That in our compound, we literally had a full time twenty four seven snake person that carried all the snake phantoms in case someone was bit, and really? would and would come and remove the the, the venomous, dangerous snakes um, when when they were found. Um, so that person was notified, and they came. And, um, and and got the snake. And when you see the pictures of the cobras, the way they they kind of stand up and, and they move their head, the, the famous cobra look, I it went back to the room and with me and my wife after they'd captured it and they kind of took it out of its gunny sack. And when it, it, it looked up at us, all that we could think of is that the snake wouldn't have been um, found. Justin would have went to bed, got up to go use the restroom in the middle of the night and would have been bitten. And yeah, like I say, we, we we were moving home very quickly after that incident. So so got a couple. Of, this is fascinating. So okay, so where did you live? I mean, did you live in a rural, really rural area, or was there a, you know a bunch of other houses? And this is just the way they live in India. I mean, so we tell actually, us more. Yeah, yeah. So we actually lived in a very very high end compound, um, and. Um, if you were to go back now, there would probably be about 40 very, very nice homes there. It was a gated community. But when we when we went in 2007, the, the tech boom had just started in Bangalore. So the houses were just being built. And we probably were like the fourth home that was finished in that compound, which is what was kicking up all the wildlife and all these snakes because all this construction was going on. Right. And our home was actually built right by what they call the old airport, which... Um, 20 years before would have been considered way outside of town. But like most cities that grow quickly, we were being engulfed in the city very, very quickly. So we weren't in a rural, rural area. We were actually very close to what they call Outer Ring Road, where all the technology companies were being built. Um, but we were actually being built on top of what used to be a lot of lakes that were being filled in to be these homes. So we were dispersing a lot of wildlife why we were there, but it was a, it was a pretty upscale, um, area. Um, I mean, if you, it must've been, you know, it must've been upscale because you had a full time, his position was to, to make sure that people to take care of snake. He was a first. So he, I'm sorry, explain the role again. Okay, so so we can do a whole different podcast on the experience of living in India, but uh, to, to give you a quick example of, of the labor, our first day on the job, and I worked for a company called Cisco Systems at the time, Oh yeah. and our executive that we went over, we were the first of four families, and we ended up hiring 10,000 people and bringing 70 executives over. So me and my wife both worked for Cisco, and we were called... Um, we were we were the pioneers of the globalization center, and um, on the first day, a gentleman came and brought his coffee to our executive, and our executive said, "Well, thank you very very much, but you know, just you know, him being trying to be nice because I I can get my own coffee." And two hours later, he found that the person that was delivering his coffee was sitting in the restroom crying. And he asked, why are you crying? And he said, you fired me. And he goes, what do you mean I fired you? And he goes, my sole job is to stand here and bring you coffee when you need it. That's all I do. 
And so, you know, there are a lot of people living in India. And when I would go to work out on my um, Stairmaster, I would literally have a person on one side that would hold my towel and a person on the other side that would hold the remote control and the air conditional control. And they would be dedicated to me for the whole 30 minutes that I was on that Stairmaster. And that's all they did. Wow. So it, it was You're very, right. Yeah. <laughs> we <laughs> can go. Is, that's a very, very different yeah. conversation of, of, of living and experience living in India. And you could have Justin. That would be very interesting to have him from his perspective of what that was, what that was like. Yeah, that was. So, okay. I don't, I don't want to quite leave the Cobra yet. So the guy captures the Cobra and he's got anti-venom because the the prevalence of snake bites in India is huge. It's one of the, you know, it's, it is, I think it is the leading cause of death by people in India by any sort of animal. Uh, and yeah. did, did you ever see anybody get bit or anything? I never saw anybody get bit, but I could very easily see that it could be, you know, one of the leading cause of deaths. And, and interestingly, one way my son almost died um, it is also a leading cause of death is children being hit by falling coconuts. Um, so that's another one to make a note of to talk to Justin about. But um, the oh venom was there. The venom was there because the roads and the traffic was so bad that um, the time it would take to get to the hospital, you know, even though the, the we had a very, very good hospital within two to three miles from where we lived. But the chance of us actually making it there because of the traffic was slim. And so one of the requirements that Cisco had, because they were bringing these foreigners into a foreign location and the snakes were so prevalent and we all were bringing our families there. What, and, and most of us all lived in one of three compounds. It was really Cisco that required as a safety mechanism that this person be hired and that, that um, we have this venom there for all of the children. Jesus, a full-time snake watcher. A yeah, full-time snake watcher, which the kids love because he would come and do different demos and, you know, just so he wasn't there bored all day. He was, you know, he became entertainment as well. Did he really? Okay. So your wife goes, and what's your wife's name, please? My wife, my wife's name is Mernalini, which is an Indian name. And um, um, she's raised in Spokane, Washington, but her family was actually from India. She's, um, she's like, we're out of here. I don't want to see my son getting bit by a cobra. <laughs> well, to make this, to make the story, to, to, to elaborate, to make Go it kind of fun, it. we were actually next door having dinner with um, um, Mortgage, who was the CEO of Cisco before John Chambers took over. And one of the one of the um, purposes of the meetings was to discuss how we could recruit more people from around the world to come to the, um, to the globalization center because we were trying to bring leadership and talent to India. And so while we were sitting there at dinner, um, one of our helpers at our house whispered into my ear that there was a snake in my son's room. And so I quietly just said, have you got the snake person? Is it being taken care of? And he's, you know, sir, yes, sir, everything's taken care of, everything's safe. And over the person overhearing this was the head of the Globalization Center, who was an, was an EVP at Cisco. And he whispered in my ear, 
this story is not to be placed on Facebook and not to be discussed because we were trying to get <laughs> families to move to India. And the last thing that we, he wanted was this story, you know, quickly circulating around in, you know, Cisco that um, there are snakes getting into the house of our employees. So, you know, very quietly, he's like, can we not discuss this? So I'm now putting this on a podcast many years later. I think we're safe <laughs> at this point. Okay. I'm, hopefully they've addressed it. But, so the guy caught the snake and he showed it to you, huh? He did. He did. And we also, honestly, at much the more dangerous snakes that we, we caught regularly in our, in our garden were the Russell Vipers. And the fear there was more, we had brought our, our, we had a golden retriever that we brought to India that was there with us. And so we were worried with our dog being out in the garden that, um, you know, being bitten by the snake. And so our gardeners would, you know, do a sweep every day through the garden to make sure that the snakes, and honestly, probably twice a month, they found a Russell Viper out in our garden. And, and my understanding is that's much more dangerous than a, a spectacle cobra. Really? Is it just more aggressive? Because I know the cobra venom is very deadly. And a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of state, and we're digressing here, but this, this, this happens a lot. In that's okay. Podcasts, you know, you start going down and I find something interesting and I want to, I want to learn about it. So the Russell Vipers, I think are pretty aggressive too, where was the, was the, um, was the cobra kind of docile at all? Or was it, was it pissed when you saw it? So it actually, to add to the story, and I, I, I'll, I'll continue on with it. It's funny because um, behind our house, um, I would go walking around looking for birds. And there were all of these just empty mounds out in the backyard. And I would go sit down on the mounds and I'd wait for the birds. Because one thing with bird photography is if you chase a bird, it's going to fly away. But if you sit quietly, they will start flying in and get much closer to you. And there was a local... Um, person there that was saying this word to me and he kept pointing and saying this word and I would just smile and and look at him and acknowledge him but I had no idea what he was saying so after going out there like maybe four or five days in a row I finally went back to our driver and I asked him what this word meant and he said it meant cobra nest and I was literally standing on where the cobras were going to hatch Whoa. And so I never went back out there again. So what happened was the cobras had hatched right behind our house. And the cobra that came into his bedroom was actually a baby cobra. But what oh. was explained to me is that baby cobras are actually more dangerous because a cobra does not want to give away in it when it bites. It doesn't want to give away all of its venom because it takes, it could take, you know, I'm not a snake expert, but it can take, you know, hours or days to rebuild up that venom and, it, and it's exposed during that time. So an older um, cobra would be very careful as to how much venom it used based on the threat. A baby cobra has not developed that capability yet. So when a baby cobra bites you, it's going to just pump out all of its venom. So they, really? ex they explained to us, because my first response was, oh, that was just a baby cobra. And they're like, no, 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 no. That baby cobra is actually much more dangerous than a full-grown cobra. How far was this nest from your house? Oh, maybe 100 yards. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, because our homes were literally being built kind of where all the lakes had been before. 
Um, and so, yeah, it's just like if, if, you know, I believe you're from Southern California, you know, in the 70s, when, when the real boom of Los Angeles and they were building all of these, you know, what they, we called track homes back in those days, it would kick up all the animals. Um, and that's, that's kind of what was happening there. They were, they were, for the most part, they were being displaced and stuff. So we had a lot of critters, you know, that would be coming into our houses as our neighbor's construction was going on, that would kick up more things. And, and, and so there was a lot of, a lot of wildlife in the area. Wow. All right. Well, you know, maybe we're going to have to reschedule a podcast to talk about your experiences in India. So your, you know, your wife goes, we're out of here because there's a cobra in our bedroom and I don't want my son to die. So what happened next in terms of your passion for, and I'm, you're not a birder, you're a bird photographer, and we'll make that distinction again. Yeah. So yeah. what was the next step in your journey? So we moved back to the U.S. in 2010, and I had my little camera. It was an 8400, 400 millimeter. And at the time, I thought that that was a long lens. And um, what I discovered is that bird photography is a very, very popular um, hobby. And, you know, it's all through the U.S. and the world, but it was very big in, 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 in um, the Bay Area. And there were lots of places to do bird photography in the Bay Area. So I just started going out and meeting other photographers and very quickly learned that I did not have the right equipment and that you needed a minimum of 500 millimeter. So I invested in better equipment. And so it was really in 2010 that my real passion for the bird photography started. And um, that's when I set out to do... Um, you know, start to, I wanted to photograph every North America bird. And it's, it's kind of funny because that's about the time I saw that the movie you had mentioned, The Big Year. It's kind of a coincidence that you brought that up. And I also discovered a, a gentleman, his name was Brian Small. And I found out later after I got to know him, um, because I followed him on the web, that his father was actually the founder of, of Cornell Labs. And Cornell Labs is, is famous out of Cornell University for, you know, birds and the study of birds. And um, so I got on this pilgrimage to start doing these trips where I would go to the Rio Grande Valley of Texas and I would photograph the birds in Texas and I would do a trip up to Nome, Alaska to capture the birds up in Nome, Alaska. And this really kicked off for me and, you know, about 2014 is when I really, really got into that. And that addiction, and I will warn anybody listening that thinks they want to get into bird photography, it's an addiction. It's obsessive because, you know, you learn more about your cameras, you learn more about the birds, and it's it, it just the more you do it, the more you want to get a better picture of that bird, the more you want to collect more birds, and it becomes a passion. So you decided... That you're, you know, you got you 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 got all the right technology, all the right equipment. Now you're going to go to Nome, Alaska, mm -hmm. to to mm -hmm. photograph the birds. So did you do you have a list of birds that you want to photograph? Do you do research ahead of time? Do you know in Nome, Alaska, where to go? Walk us through, please, your trip. What happens and you know, the, 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 in the photographic sessions you're, you're embarking on. 
Yeah, that is that is really a wonderful question. So if I'm to plug my website and I can give the, the, the website Please. at the end, it's 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 Tom Ingram Photography. And if you go to birds, what I did is I went to um, the National Geographic um, list of birds of North America, the breeding birds of North America. And I, I created a website in the same fashion of when I used to collect football cards. And I listed on this website every North America bird, which I think there was about maybe 900 birds that breed in North America. And it was just- As opposed to, I'm sorry to interrupt. Yeah. As opposed to migratory birds that just pass through and don't breed here? That is correct. So there are okay. birds that are on my website that are North America birds, but um, they're, sometimes they might be what's called a variant. It's a bird that got blown in a storm and ends up in North America. So I photographed it in North America, but it's not regularly found in North America. Um, or there are lots of birds that every year might through migration fly through North America on its way, say up to the Arctic to, to Canada, uh, which Canada is still North America, but it's, it's migrating through. So it's a bird that maybe could be photographed every year, but I just wanted to be able to do something that was manageable to do as fun. So Tom, isn't there a, isn't there a bird, isn't there a crazy bird that migrates from like Antarctica to Arctic? North Pole to the South Pole every year or something like that? A turn? Well, well there's turns. There's one. The red knot is one yeah. of the famous birds that migrates all the way from the tip of South America all the way up into Nova Scotia, uh, Canada. And so, yes, there's actually, you know, um, it's hard in this to, to, to stay on point because there's so many interesting things to talk about. But one of the things that we've learned recently we used to tag birds and we would know that a bird every year would return with its tag, but we had no idea where it was going or where it came from. But now with more technology where we can implant a, a GPS tracker in just the last few years, you know, it's just been an explosion of knowledge to know not only where the bird is coming from, but you might have a flock of a species of birds that all go to one Caribbean island, as an example. And so we've really? now learned that if we destroy the habitat of this one island, you will wipe out the entire species of this bird. It's been, you know, it's been really enlightening um, in, 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 in our, our, our knowledge of birds just recently in the, in the migratory. But, but to come back to what I was doing so I just yes, listed please. the birds. It's still there on my website. And they were, the, the words of the bird were all in white. So the name, you know, Canadian goose in white. And then as I photographed that bird, I changed that um, word from white to green. And now you drill in, you, you click on that bird and it takes you to all the pictures of that bird and where I photographed that bird. So it's become a collection. I use the example of like, you know, collecting football cards or collecting stamps. It became a collecting thing for me. So I looked and I said, okay, I started doing research as, so I, I first started around the Bay area. I started taking the pictures and I started getting, you know, 10, 15% of the birds, but I'm like, okay, I want to get a green um, kingfisher. Where, where do green kingfishers um, exist? Well, they exist in the Rio Grande Valley area in, in Texas and, 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 and New Mexico and Southwestern Arizona. 
So I, I found a guide um, that would take me down to that area. And I, I got a list. What are the birds that only show up in that area? And I would hire a guide and I would go to that area and we would try to photograph as many of them as we could. So maybe I captured 80% of the, the birds of that area. And it was the same when we use the example of Nome, Alaska. I found a gentleman, uh, Matthew Studebaker, amazing, amazing bird photographer guide. And he specialized um, in birds um, of Alaska. And so I started going, I've done probably seven or eight trips to different locations of Alaska. And he's the guide that I use there. He, he does other areas as well. Um, so I started researching who can take me and what birds I needed to get. And I just started collecting birds pictures <laughs> as I would travel to different areas. Yeah. So, so tell us about, for some reason, I don't know why I think this, that, that there would be a lot of big birds in Alaska, I guess, because it's a big area and, you know, I always think of bald eagles. What type mm -hmm. of bird lives? I mean, is there a variety of birds in Alaska? I'm sure there is. But uh, yeah, tell us yeah. about the birds of Alaska. Yeah. So, so um, there's a there's a lot of variety of, of birds. Um, there's four birds that are special to me. They're called eiders, and eiders are ducks, but they're Arctic ducks. And three of these ducks, um, the spectacle eider, the king eider, and the stellar eider can only be found in the furthest um, reaches of the Arctic up north. And they spend most of their life out at sea, but they come in to places like um, Barrow, Alaska, which is the most northern town in North America and the third furthest northern town in the world. Um, it's, it's really a small Eskimo village, really. And um, so that's where you can catch them nesting. But the fascinating thing about birds is that um, when you go to Alaska, when they're breeding, that's when they get their beautiful plumage. And that's I when they you. look really beautiful. So say a, um, an American um, sandpiper. Um, so, um, and I might be mispronouncing some of these birds. It might be embarrassing to me um, because it's, I knew in my mind it's not a sandpiper. But um, I can take those pictures in Monterey Bay, but they're not going to be in their summer plumage so they're flying back through um monterey in the winter time and they're when we see them here they're really a dull looking boring bird so one of the things i learned is i could get the bird picture in different locations but i really want to get them when they're really in their striking um breeding plumage and some of these Absolutely. birds might have four different transitions to them throughout the year you know based on the, their molting cycle and, and where, so you, so a lot of these birds, green kingfisher, and this is kind of a debate I was having with a friend recently. He goes, oh, I, I take pictures of that bird in Costa Rica all the time. And I, and I said, yes, but I'm trying to get them in North America. And he goes, so does it matter to you if you took it in Costa Rica or North America? And I said, for me, it does, because I'm trying to capture the North America birds. Um, and so, and in some of these birds, like warblers, the um, the, the wood warblers, um, they will look different when you see them in the um, you know Central America than when you see them in America or North America. Because in North America, when they fly up north, they're typically heading up to Canada. That's where they're breeding, and they're going to always look the most brilliant when they're breeding. 
And they're also going to be feisty and animated. And I'm sure it's, it's way more interesting and fun to photograph a bird that is close to the, you know, to their mating cycle than, you know, if they weren't, can I, can I ask you about Point Barrow, please? Yes, yes, yes. Okay. So, so, so you decide you want to go to Point Barrow, which is right there on the Arctic Sea in the very tip of Alaska. I mean, it's way the heck up there. So first of all, how did you get there? How did you, I know you flew, but how did, I mean, did you fly to, 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 um, to Nome and take a puddle jumper or a dog sled? How'd you get there? <laughs> you know, getting to these, getting to some of these locations, I, I, I've, 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 I've gone from bird photography and I do a lot of mammal photography. So I just got back from Lake Clark, um, in the Katmai area photographing grizzly bears just a couple of weeks ago. And Whoa. some of the biggest adventure is getting to the locations, um, so you typically fly, I fly to Seattle, Seattle to Anchorage. And then what's interesting to, about going to in each city in, in Alaska is kind of a different experience, to be honest. So in Barrow, there is a plane, the 737 that's been modified because um, twice a day, the planes fly. And the only way to get anything in and out the Barrow is by plane. There's no seaport. There's no roads. And so the plane is half cargo and half passenger. And so it's, it's actually been modified. Um, and it's, it's Alaska Airlines and it flies out of Anchorage and it flies in, into Barrow. So that's not as much of an adventure as going to places like, like, like Kaktobik. And that's where I go to, to photograph um, polar bears in Alaska, where we literally do get on a very small plane and fly over the, um, the North Slope. Um, and when we were just in Katmai, we were flying um, in what was called a beaver. It, it, it fit seven um, passengers, including the pilot. And we were landing in the water, having to deal with the tides um, and going to some pretty remote locations. And so, yes, the flying and getting to the locations can be a large part of, of, of the adventure. Um, the, the, one of the things that um, was interesting about being in Barrow is when you're out on the open tundra walking to, so basically what you're doing is, is the, the, um, the ice is melted in the summer. The um, tundra is full of flowers. It's just absolutely, you know, if you could ever go there, it's, it's, it's really breathtaking. And you have these Arctic lakes that are melting and the birds are, are, you literally, as you're walking, have to be careful because there's so many nests that you could be stepping, you know, every two feet, there's a nest and you could be stepping and in, 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 in on the nest because a lot of them are, are ground nesters. Um, but there's also polar bears cruising around out there. So you truly have to be aware of your surroundings because when you're getting out in nowhere, you become part of the prey. <laughs> um, and so I'm saying that because it sounds really adventurous, but that is one area that you do really have to be careful. Yes, I could see that because I've heard that polar bears actually stalk humans to eat. So, one thing when you're... Mm. No, no. So that's... I, I didn't talk about it, but I used to do underwater photography for about five or six years before we went to India. And so I've done, I spent a lot of time photographing sharks all over the world. I photographed sharks and, and it sounds so crazy, 
but I never, ever felt in danger. And, and I photographed probably 20 different types of sharks. And I What types of sharks? Lemon what sharks. What types of sharks? Lemon sharks, tiger sharks, bull sharks, black tip hammerheads. I mean, you, you name it. Um, you know, I, I, I've spent time um, photographed. So let's not, not digress to that because that, that's, okay. that's fun. But, but I've spent lots of time around, you know, in, in Africa with, with the lions and with, you know, grizzly bears. I mean, I spent a lot of time very close up with grizzly bears. The only animal that I've ever experienced that will eat you and literally stalks you is a polar bear. And you are aware when you're around them that you are in their food chain. And I've always said that there would not be 8 billion of us on earth if we tasted good. And so most animals, you know, <laughs> they attack us because we've, we've, thre we've threatened them, right? We, we hear right. about great whites mistaking us for a seal, but once they bite through that, that wetsuit, they spit us out. We don't taste good. Um, so we must taste good to polar bears because um, I was in a situation where I was photographing these polar bears. And what you tend to do is you go out in these little boats that are icebreakers and you're on the ice, but polar bears are very quick across the ice. And I would see them stand up and they would, they would sniff you, they would smell you. And they would start coming towards the boat and the boat captain is like, oh, it's time to get out of here. Um, so you do you do know that you are prey. Um, and, and so you that's the only animal that I'm still not afraid because, you know, again, if you're using your common sense, you know, you don't put yourself in a dangerous situation, but you do have to be aware that, um, you know, it, it is dangerous. Wow. You know, I'm just realizing how boring, Tom, my life is. <laughs> you know. So, Point Barrow, did you enjoy, like, the, do they have, like, restaurants or food? Or, <laughs> I mean, what's up there? Oh, my goodness. Um, it is literally an Eskimo village. Now, if you've ever, go Google it. it it's, it's now been renamed to its, its Eskimo name, and, and I wouldn't even try to pronounce it. Um, but it's, it's, it's really remote, and it's, it's still, they still, um, you know, hunt um, what they call substance living, so they still hunt the whales. And um, it's, it's, I don't even know how to describe how, how remote it is. They do have a high school football team that's famous there. It, their football field is actually blue, and they fly people in there, other teams from Alaska, to come play football up there for the, the kids that are there. But it's, it's remote. Um, it was, it's, it's one of the most beautiful, incredible places that I've ever been. Um, I, I've been fortunate in my life to travel pretty much everywhere in the world. And, you know, everybody talks about Alaska. I mean, I'm sorry, Africa. But um, it's not the big mountains that you would think it's not these glaciers that you would think when you picture Alaska, it's really just flat, boring tundra. But when you get out on that tundra and you're walking and you cannot see anything from any direction around you, and you just realize how far out in nature you are. And, and again, it's like walking through this flower bed because this, this um, tundra in, in, the, in the summer is just, blooming with all these wildflowers and um 
it's breathtaking. It's, 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 it's an awe-inspiring experience. Um, each location that I've gone to Alaska is, is honestly very different in the, the, top, in the topography. And um, that's one of my favorite places. And what are your favorite, uh, what are your, let's stick to birds, okay? Because mm-hmm. we can yep, go yep, in a myriad yep. of different directions. Sure, sure. And I can tell you've got your website on there. And why don't you give a plug for your website again, please? It's TomIngramPhotography.com, all one okay. word. Uh, Ingram, I... N-G-R-A-M. Okay, just like, uh, just like the running back from Alabama. So... So uh, what are your favorite birds up there and why? So I enjoy um, birds of prey. Are, are, um, I, I love anything that's a bird of prey. Up in, up in Barrow, again, it's the eiders. Um, they're a duck, but they are a beautiful, beautiful. If you can look up a king eider, um, it's like n- no bird that you would see in North America. There's birds in Asia, like ducks in Asia that look like this, but it's, it's just absolutely brilliant. And it's, there's something about the fact that you have to, the only way you're ever going to see this bird is to go to these very remote areas because they spend most of their time out at sea. Um, I also How do they love, live out at sea. I mean, they're just, they, so they just float around out there. They do. And they eat, they, you know, there's, there's seabirds. There are many, many pelagic birds that never come to land and spend their entire life out at sea. Um, So, and and that, and and that's, if you go to my website, you'll see that I don't have very many of those because I get seasick. (laughs) So I do go out even, even though I live right by, you know, I live in Santa Cruz, Monterey area. And and a lot of those birds are very easy for me to access. I I, I don't get as excited about going and photographing them. Um, But yeah, and a lot, there's one that I, just photographed recently that's called a pigeon um, gallimot and it comes in to breed on shore and but then it will go back to sea so a lot of these birds will come in to breed but spend most of their time out at sea um so there are there are a, a broad variety of songbirds and seabirds and shorebirds and ducks and terns um that are up in Alaska. Um, you know, I, I bet you of the, you know, say 800 birds in North America, probably 600. I'm just guessing. Again, I'm not a, a, a real expert in birds, but probably 600 of them are up in Alaska. Um, the beauty of going to Alaska is that's where they breed. So that's where you're going to get them in their prettiest plumage. I see. And what are your favorite, like, uh, tell us about your favorite birds of prey, because I love birds of prey. We got them like we got them in our backyard. We got a sparrowhawk that comes into our backyard, mm. oh, about once every month, and surveys for rodents. And mm-hmm, if he doesn't see, mm-hmm. he takes off. So, what are your favorite birds of prey, and where do you find them? And have you had the encounters with them? Talk about that for a minute, please. Well, owls are considered birds of prey, and my favorite birds are owls. Um, so I, I would say, and I just recently, um, got a, a a spotted owl, but it was a Mexican variant. There's a lot of, as, as you get more and more into birds, there's the subspecies of birds, 
there's the different plumage of birds. So, so we know of spotted owls that live up in Northern California and Oregon that live in the redwoods, but there's also um, a variant that lives in Northern Mexico and in Southern Arizona um, that I believe they think that there's only about 2000 of them left. So it's, it's, it's definitely endangered and it has a different, it's a different shade than the ones that we would find up north. So owls are definitely, um, you know, the great gray owl. Um, what I love about owls is when they fly, they're so silent, you would never hear them. And then in the, just the way they swoop and they get their prey, um, I find it to, to be fascinating. Um, I went to, this year in February, I went to a place called Homer, Alaska, and we focus exclusively on the, on the bald eagle. And it's funny because up in Alaska, they, they think of a bald eagle like we would think of a turkey vulture down below because there's just so many of them. Right. But um, I was specializing, you know, there was specific types of pictures that I was trying to get um, of them. And, you know, just seeing an eagle, you know, a golden eagle swooping down and getting a fish is, is just majestic. Um, in Utah, um, I enjoy the peregrine falcon. I mean, I'm sorry, the prairie falcon. The prairie falcon is not as fast as the peregrine falcon. Um, but when it's coming in to get its prey, um, again, it's amazing because they'll be setting up on a telephone pole, you know, like a half a mile away. And they eat small songbirds. Um, they, they don't eat, they, they tend not to eat rodents. And when they see these birds, it's just incredible how, how did they see that bird from that distance? And they just swoop down so low to the ground. And it's hard to photograph because they're moving so quickly and they're so close to the ground that, you know, you lose track of them. And they're flying at literally 60 to 70 miles an hour when they swoop in and take the prey. Jesus. So to capture them getting the prey you know, that's, that's what I find exhilarating. I mean, I might spend two weeks just trying to get one good shot um, of, of that bird sweeping in and getting, and getting its prey. Um, and so, you know, the falcons, if I was to say, what's my favorite, it's probably the falcons. It's probably. They the are just amazing. So do you know, like when you're photographing, because I could see when something, I don't care what type of camera you have and how good your equipment is, you know, you know, it, there's got to be an element of luck, but there's got to be a huge amount of preparation. Mm -hmm. So do you actually see a bird and then wait for it to make a move? Or do you actually go to an area where the birds are prevalent and yes. hope you capture something? A ton of research ahead of time. You need to understand their food. You need to understand their behavior. You need to understand the wind patterns you know, that a bird is going to fly into the wind. So you want to capture that bird with the sun coming, you know, behind your back. So if the wind's blowing the wrong way, there's not going to be any photography that day. You need the wind blowing the right direction based on the sun angle. And so you, you pay attention to the weather. There's a tremendous amount of research and planning in, you know, some days you just go out and you go walk in on a trail and you take a picture of a, of a nice songbird when you happen to see it up on a branch. Sure, that happens. But typically it's more like, I know these warblers are going to be migrating through New Jersey this week. 
And what's the best location to find these birds when they're migrating? And then you go to that location during that migration. So sometimes there might be luck that you get the right shot, that all of those um, attributes come together, but there's a lot of planning, a lot of research, and um, you're, you're not always successful. You know, you might try, you know, three or four years to get the shot that you want to get. And that's what makes it so fun. I would think. So is there a bird that has eluded you that you're like obsessed and mm. addicted to getting? Is there anything that's out there that you're going, God, my life would be complete if I photographed this bird? Well, for a lot of, there's, there's a few similar birds that, that are difficult to get. One is a mountain quail that I haven't photographed yet. Um, for me, recently getting that spotted owl was was one of those birds because I only have two more owls in North America to capture. Um, but I live close to the spotted owl. But I, you know, anytime somebody told me where there was one in the area, I was always just missing it, not finding it. Um, so recently getting that spotted owl was 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 one of those birds. But um, there are several warblers that only exist literally on one trail and one mountain, you know? Really? So I know that eventually I've got to go to Big Basin National Park in Southern Texas and do that three mile hike to get that golden wing warbler because that's the only place that it ex- exists. So that's why I mentioned it becomes kind of like collecting football cards, you know? And early on, you might go do a trip and you might get 15 new birds. Now you do a trip and you're, you, you have three birds that you have as targets. And you might do that trip two or three times and not get those. And then when you get you now, if you get one new bird, it's it's exciting. Yeah, well, you've been doing it. How long have you been doing it now? Since, Since 2010. So about 12 years. Um, so, yeah, I, I would imagine it's going to become more and more difficult to capture the birds that are the most elusive, I would think, because you've been doing it for so long. How many how many states have you been to to mm. photograph birds? That's that's interesting because I've I have focused on certain you know Alaska I go to a lot, um, Arizona and Texas I go to a lot, um, Northern uh, Michigan is a great location as the as the warblers are coming through. So I, I tend to love going to Northern Michigan. Um, I haven't made it to Minnesota yet, but in the wintertime, there's a couple birds up there, um, you know, like the great gray owl in the wintertime. I've photographed the great gray owl, but I've never got it in snow before. Um, So I would say Alaska, Arizona, Texas, and Michigan, and then obviously California, because that's that's where I'm at. And then I spent a little bit of time. um, My wife took a job in New Jersey a few years ago, so I had the opportunity to spend some time in New Jersey and New York. And so I, I, I kind of caught up on the, the birds in that area. Um, go ahead. Have you ever, have you ever, have you ever, like, I know that there's lots of birds now in cities, you know, yeah. lots of birds of prey getting, ever capture anything there? Absolutely. You know, it's funny sometimes where they're um, in a city of, called Milpitas in, in the valley, there, there's actually a nesting bald eagle that's, it's, it's in the middle of an elementary school. And, um, there's the one of the pictures that 
I've, I've captured, but you're always wanting to get a better and a better and a better picture. But there's what's called a food exchange between two white-tailed kites. And um, when they're mating, the male will go out and catch a mouse. And as part of the, rate, the, the, the mating ritual, the female will come up and in midair, they will hold talons and they will exchange that mouse in midair as they're kind of spinning around in the air. And so trying to capture that exact moment of when they exchange is something that's fun. But, you know, it usually happens in a parking lot. You know, Great America Park, Great America, well, it, it, there's amusement park, you know, right where the 49ers play, um, Shoreline Amphitheater. You know, so there are, it's sometimes you're not always out in the deep woods <laughs> doing this. Sometimes it takes you to the middle of Salt Lake City. We were trying to capture a, a um, um, uh, my mind went blank on what, uh, a Cooper's Hawk. And it, oh, yeah. we, 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 we caught it. We, we tracked it and we ended up photographing it in air so you couldn't tell. And I don't want to ruin this picture because it's beautiful, but we were actually in the middle of a Walmart parking lot when we actually took the shot. Are you really? <laughs> so That is so, so funny. Sometimes I'm always afraid of, you know, um, the way you try to, we call it the hand of man. You never want the, to show the hand of man in the, the nature picture. Right. Um, but sometimes if you saw where I actually took it, it, it might ruin the effect of the picture. <laughs> <laughs> so how about, so um, I was, we have a place in Palm Desert and mm -hmm. I was sitting there having a, a cocktail in our backyard and a huge bird. I mean, it was, I, I would, I, I like to think it was a golden eagle, but it might've been something else. It was probably five, six feet wingspan. It was huge. It was no hawk. Have you ever done any, any, could that have been a golden eagle? You know, it could have been, but you know what I think that, that has actually almost come from the brink of extinction, but the California condor has been, is, is now, you know, it, it was originally released in Big Sur and Pinnacles National Park. And then it spread to Arizona, but it's now in Death Valley. And it's, it's, it's so it's, it's making its comeback. And, and what you're describing to me, it could have absolutely been a, a golden eagle, but it, acts, it could have been a California condor. They are very large. Oh my God, that would be, because they're very, are, are they starting to bounce back now? Oh, absolutely. But yeah, they're now being found in, in Bryce National Park. And so they're, um, yeah, they're, they're in Utah and Arizona. And so the area that you're in, I, I believe that they've made their way back there. So absolutely could have been a golden eagle, but the way you're describing it, I, I think you might've, and to see a, a California condor is, is absolute. No, I think there was down to maybe what, six or seven of them left. On yeah. Earth. And um, it's very possible that that's what you saw. Now, are there hundreds of them left or... I would, of them now? you know, they're, you know, I, 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 I bet you there's several hundred of them, if, if not even more now. That's so great. What a success story. How did they do that? So they actually, they actually went and captured, I read a book about this. Um, they actually went and captured the last few wild ones and it was really controversial and they took them back. I think it had to do with the San Diego Zoo, if I, if I believe correctly. And they took them into captivity and they started a breeding program. And then they started reintroducing them 
back into the wild. And now I believe that they're actually breeding again in the wild. And really what, what caused their demise um, was lead bullets. So what they would do is as we were hunting, maybe we would, we would shoot a deer and shoot it with lead bullet and, and, and the deer ran off and died and we didn't find the deer. The condor comes in as a scavenger and eats that deer and they were getting lead poisoning. So they, they were finding, as they were finding the, the condors die, you know, they'd find the, the dead condors, they, they would all have lead poisoning. And so that's why there's been this huge movement, pretty successful to get, you know, duck hunters um, to move from lead um, um, shot to still shot. Um, and the still shot, from my understanding, is not as, you know, maybe not as effective for the hunters. But, you know, most, it's interesting, a lot of the bird photographers that I've become friends with are, are ex-hunters, are current hunters, you know, because it's, it's the same thrill. It's the same, you know, love. And, and I always say that, you know, I get to, I don't have to worry about just having the small duck season that I can go out and hunt. I can go out and photograph ducks all year long and, and I don't have to to you know harm them in doing so um so it, it's become a popular hobby amongst people that used to hunt in the past that now have moved on to photography that is so cool so we're going on an hour did you have fun tom i had a blast i act i didn't i Jim. thought it was i thought it was 15 minutes jen has it really been an hour <laughs> it's, it's, it's been so yeah, much fun it's been, it's been 64 minutes so what I like to do, I mean, I would love to have you on and talk about sharks and polar bears. I know that birds are your passion. Uh, so why don't you tell us, so let me describe the feeling that you had when you photographed that rare spotted owl, and that was in Texas, right? Or was it, was, it, was, it, it, it was It was in Arizona, and it was, you know, Part of the excitement of it is, and people, you know, part of the passion is we are losing a lot of animals. As you hear, there's, there's a large massive extinction. And, and as I'm taking some of these pictures, I realize that they won't be here to share with Justin's kids. And I'm going to be able to share them through pictures. And so when I found the spotted owl, knowing there's so few left, knowing that their habitat is shrinking very rapidly, my excitement is um, to be able to photograph that in the wild in its natural habitat, knowing that it, it might not be with us um, forever. And that, that's kind of special to me. Um, and that's kind of why I'm doing this, to be honest. Um, my biggest thrill, when I, I post this stuff on Facebook and the world that we live in now, you know, I, I, I get pe people all the time thanking me because, you know, I don't, usually say much about the animals. I just post the animals and, and it brings happiness to people. And, and people are usually surprised. They're like, you, you, you photographed that long-tailed weasel in Sebastopol in a park? I'm like this wildlife is amongst us and we don't even know it. It's, it's living right next to it. You don't have to go to Alaska to experience it. Have you ever been to Newport Beach in the Back Bay and photographed any of those birds? Absolutely, that is one of the. That's a very, very special place in in um, California and in North America, honestly, um, to photograph. I love that area down there. Yes, is there because of the variety? Because of why? The variety and the habitat. So when we were mentioning, a lot of those birds are migratory birds. 
And so when you're down there photographing them, um, you're like, okay, that bird just came from central, that bird just came from Argentina and it's, it's, and it's heading up to Alaska. And we see them every year, every year, you're not really paying attention to time of the year. And, and you've been raised in that area. And every year you see those birds, but there, some of these birds are only there for two weeks. They're literally just passing through. And when you think that a little, little tiny hummingbird makes a journey across the Gulf of Mexico every year, one flight, it can't land, it takes off. And you think that a little warbler that's born up in, um, in Wisconsin and the parents take off, it's never been to South America where it's going and it's, it finds its parents in South America. It's absolutely, these, these things are incredible. And so, yeah, what, what, what makes that Newport Beach so wonderful is those birds that you're seeing there, they are stopping off. You know, we have our favorite restaurants that we go to. When I go to New York City next week, I'm going to go visit Justin. We're going to go to, you know, what, what is our great restaurant? Um, they're stopping off in Newport Beach because there's a food that they love in Newport Beach that they're not going to get when they get up to, say, um, Portland, Oregon on their next stop. So, I mean, they... They must have incredible not only instincts but memory and intelligence. I mean, that's amazing. We don't know yet. We're thinking that it has to do with the stars, with gravity. Um, it's it's you know similar to when it, when a salmon is born, it swims out in the ocean, and three years later, it finds its its stream that it was born in, and goes all the way up and lays its eggs at its at its birth location. We don't know how these animals know this you know there's just there's just so much to learn still um but they do think that some of these birds actually use the the stars their think um to find their way to where they're going but it's it's an, it's extinctual i mean they literally the, the the baby warblers are and the butterflies do the same thing the butterflies fly you know thousands of miles to come to um to Santa Cruz, and they all end up from all over in one group of eucalyptus trees. How do they know where to go to? We don't know. Jesus. But we so do you... know if we chop those eucalyptus trees down. Yeah. That's that's what's getting really interesting. Is you know how there was this one, and I, 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 don't don't ask me the name of it because it's going to slip my mind. But there's this one warbler that almost went extinct. And we realized that it only bred on one species of tree. And those trees had almost been completely removed. It was almost extinct up in Michigan. And at the last minute, we realized it. And somebody literally bought five acres and planted like a Christmas tree farms, an individual. And because of those trees being planted, that warbler didn't go extinct. Really? Yeah, and it's thriving now. I mean, it's, it's thriving. Yeah, it's absolutely. There's now thousands of them again, but it will only build a nest in that one specific tree. How cool is that? So you said there's a hummingbird. I mean, that little guy flies all the way across the Gulf of Mexico from where to where? Almost all of them. They're coming from Costa Rica. So there's different hummingbirds. You know, there's there's the um, the Anna hummingbird is popular in California, and you also will get the Allen hummingbird. And there's a few that come here, but most all of them, they're migratory birds. They're spending the winter, they take off and they go to, they're in Colombia, they're in Costa Rica. 
Um, you know, some of them are all the way down into Argentina and Ecuador. Um, and those, that little tiny bird is migrating thousands of miles every year. Jesus, so the, so the, the little birds I see eating the nectar from our flowers could be from Costa Rica? It's prop. It is from Costa Rica. Yeah, I mean, I don't know each species, but yes, yes. That there is are some astounding. of them. Yes, there's some of them. What they'll, they'll call they overwinter. So there are a few of them that you know might not migrate home, but they are migratory birds, and they are flying thousands of miles every year. And what's incredible is that they do the trip. So say they're coming from Panama to Texas. So one of my favorite, I know we're over, but one of my favorite places is we go to this place in Galveston, Texas, the little island off of outside of Houston. And a hundred years ago, um, this guy built this mound on his property because his cows kept getting killed when the hurricanes would happen. So it's literally simply a foot higher than the rest of the island. And a bunch of vegetation has grown. And so we set up a blind there and as these birds are migrating from South America, they literally come across, they're exhausted. They need water, they need rest. And, they, and what we do is we set up this little um, drip, water drip, and the birds hear the water dripping and they just fall out of the sky. And so you'll have one species, there'll be a hundred of the same bird. They're all laying there. They'll be there for three or four minutes. So they'll wash in the, our little pool that we built and then they take off. And a few minutes later, another species will all drop down. And it's a blast because you don't know what species are going to, they call it fallout. They just keep dropping down. And we're just there on their migratory path. And they literally will spend 10, 15 minutes, maybe an hour, and then they move on. And they're headed to Canada. They're headed to Alaska. They're headed to Russia. And, and we're literally setting this little spot that's the first place of land that they come to after, you know, they... They literally take off at say 11 o'clock at night um, from say, you know, Columbia and they've been flying all night. And, and this is the first land they arrive and they just fall out of the sky exhausted. Well, and some of these animals, like the, the hummingbird, I mean, they flap their wings like, I, you know, like 50 times a second or something like that. Right. And so, they, yeah, yeah. And so, I mean, so they're like in the billions just to get across. I mean, if it takes them two months, you know, I'm not, you know, I'm no wizard at math, but if you're doing 50, 50 beats a second times, you know, a minute times an hour times a day times a month, I mean, you're talking about flapping your wings a billion times. It's amazing how strong these creatures are. Now, there are a few birds that take off and literally fly thousands of miles without landing. Now, the hummingbird, as we're describing, is simply just flying over the gulf. And then it's, gonna, it's going to um, catch up on its nutrition and eat before it moves on. And that's like the red, the red knot. The red knots, there's a book on the migration, and, and, and the migration is incredible. But it lands in um, Cape May, um, New Jersey, and it's, it's famous for eating the eggs of the um, horseshoe crab. And so the horseshoe crab is really important to this bird because that's, it lands in its long journey, and it might spend four or five days refattening up, re, 
building up its reserves before it because it's making its way up to the northern parts of Canada. So their, their migration isn't one big trip. It's stopping along the way to, to refuel, refuel, refuel as it's making it, it, its journey. So it's totally dependent on each leg of the journey, some sort of unique gift mm-hmm. from Mother Nature to, to feed it, to shelter it. And I, I, the interdependency is just amazing. There's it's astounding. It's astounding. So, for example, the smallest owl in the world is called an elf owl. It's tiny. It's landed on my shoulder before, and it's like two inches. It's two, three inches. It's tiny, tiny. It's, it's like the size of a robin. And it breeds in Segoya cactus in the desert. Those cactus holes are created by woodpeckers. So if those woodpeckers don't exist, the owl dies. There's incredible interdependencies on different animals for these things to exist. Wow. And there's a real, since you're an owl guy, in a place not too far from here, there's a park where they have owls that burrow into the ground that are like three inches tall. The burrowing owls. You you know about them. Oh, absolutely. And they, they are absolutely hysterical to watch because... They live in these little family groups. So there's usually a bunch of them. And when they pop out of their holes, they their heads were like pop up and down, pop up and down as they're looking. And so they're absolutely hilarious. Now, you know, they're threatened because of poison. You know, so you put out rat poisoning and, and rodent poisoning. Um, so that's their demise. Um, so they're, they're very threatened and they're, they're an amazing animal. And they live in... And all the little cavities in the ground. Um, they're called burrowing owls. Yes. And do they fly? They don't fly, right? Oh, absolutely. No, no, they absolutely fly. Um, oh, and they, they migrate. Do. They migrate. Now, I'm, I'm oh, those not are gonna... migratory animals. They're migratory animals. So they're going to come and they're going to build their nesting homes, and then they're going to fly on. Yeah. Do you have picture toms of extinct birds that have since you've done it? There has not been any birds that I have photographed that have gone extinct since I've been taking them. I do have some pictures of birds that are very, very threatened. Um, the spectacle eider would be would be an example. So for fun, something I'm proud of, if you Google spectacle eider, my picture will come up with Tom Ingram on it. <laughs> really? So um, because it's, it hasn't been that photographed. Um so um, there, so there's definitely some birds I photographed that are very endangered, um, but none that that have gone extinct. No, and let's keep my fingers crossed that that stays the case. That is, I mean, that's the best news I've heard all day, and I've heard a lot of news. Well, listen, Thomas Ingram, what is the name of your website again, please? TomIngramPhotography.com. Okay, I want to thank you. This has been fascinating. We could talk all day. I'd like to have you back on if you're up for it. I would I would love it. And I have to say, I did had no idea that my son knew so much about the Warriors. <laughs> <laughs> I was truly impressed. I was truly <laughs> impressed. And he, I, he, by the way, he is, I'll put in a plug for those podcasts, because his enthusiasm, his knowledge I mean, you know, it's it was it's just such a joy to have him on the podcast and he's best friends 
with one with my daughter's boyfriend. They were both uh-huh. in the same fraternity at SC. Okay. So he's he told me he wants to start doing uh, you know SC podcast now that they have a football team again. Yes, yes. Well, I would say that my son got his mother's intelligence and and my love for talking. (laughs) (laughs) Well, this has been a terrific podcast, Tom. It'll be published uh, sometime later this afternoon. In summation, right, I like to give my guests the last word. Is there anything you'd like to say about bird photography, nature, nature watching, Anything at all, lay it on us. We're all ears. So not with birds, but with animals. I I just hear so many people afraid of a coyote, afraid of a grizzly bear, afraid of a mountain lion, just like to express that we are in their homes and they're not as dangerous as we think they are. Um, You just have to respect them. And I I would say that, that that's my plug because... Um, you know, as we continue to build our homes, we're building into their environment, not the other way around. Tom, I want to thank you for being in the podcast. And I would love, love, love to have you on again. Well, I would, I would love to come back. This has been a lot of fun. All right. Thank you. Okay. Bye-bye now.